Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hi, I'm Kwame Koyamar. I'm currently Artistic Director of the Young Vic Theatre in London. And, well, I'm overjoyed actually to be part of the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I'm going to hand over to your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Well, thank you very much, Lee Kwame. It's, it's really special. And um, I, I think the lovely thing is that you were recommended as someone who others find very inspiring. I don't get people who approach me and say, I'm inspiring, I want to be on your series. <laughs> That's a bit of an oxymoron. It doesn't kind of work that way. It's all about recommendations. And I think it was Joel Blake who, who found you very inspiring. You two met in Birmingham. But would you perhaps begin by telling us a bit about this fascinating role you have at the moment? Uh, what you're doing right now, some of those things would be interesting. And then we'll go back to childhood. But just tell us a bit about the young Vic and what you're doing right now. Right. Well, um, as I said, and, and actually thank you for inviting me on, um, you know, I don't think anybody ever wakes up in the morning and says, hi, I'm inspiring. <laughs> but it is inspiring to be in conversation with you. Uh, so thank you for that. My, my current gig is I'm the artistic director, as I've said, of the Young Vic Theatre. And really what that is, is that's a curating gig. Now, there are other arms to, my, to, to me, as it were. Um, I'm also a writer at the moment. I have a couple of movies that I'm writing and I'm also a director. And, and then I have a couple of plays that I'm, I'm, I'm going to direct, amongst other things. And, and I like, if I must, I like to describe myself as um, generative, interpretive, and a curatorial artist. When I'm writing, I'm generating, of course. When I'm directing, I'm interpreting. And when I'm being an AD, I'm curating. Mm. Um, so, yeah, within that context, um, I, I'm currently... Uh, at our theatre at the moment, we have a, a wonderful uh, version of Hamlet starring Kush Jumbo at the moment. It's been celebrated, which is really lovely. And, and we're about to open a new play uh, by James Graham, the acclaimed playwright, um, about uh, set in, in the kind of the world of punditry in the late 1960s. And, and I'm, I'm really excited about that. Um, in terms of writing, I've just my latest musical opened at the public theater called The Visitor in New York. And, um, and then I have a, a couple of other movies and things that are, that are in active pre-production, as they say. Wow, that's, that's an awful lot going on. And of course, the, the world of entertainment, theaters and movies and things has been so hard hit by the pandemic. I mean, do you just want to give us a flavor of just how tough it's been for your colleagues, yourself, in, in the, the new endemic that we're now in. Yeah, I mean, in theatre in particular, and I think it's, you know, I think the, I think that COVID-19 has affected um, different industries in different ways. But I think in theatre, you know, we were technically closed for 18 months. We are a citadel of live entertainment, a kind of 21st century church, and we couldn't let people in to commune. And so that was really hard. And actually we were very blessed by the, by the government's schemes that helped to keep us afloat. But it, 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 it was really hard being dark. But actually, we're now probably on our fourth production. Um, we opened again in July, I think. And, um, and it's proving very hard. It's really, really hard to, to get people back up to speed. The mental resilience of, uh, I include myself, but, but of, of many in our sector um, has been deeply, deeply um, bruised and, and damaged. And, um, and I think it's going to take a long while before we're back to whatever the normal was before. That's even before we think about the new normal. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's going to be an impact that will go on for many years to come. One of the ladies who's going to be on the podcast in the future is uh, Sharon Peacock, CBE, who's the government's microbiologist who's in charge of the COVID response. Mm. And she said to me the other day, and I thought it quite profound, that, that the endemic will be with me all my life. I'm 60. Mm. The rest of my life, it will be here. We'll have to find ways to adapt and adjust. And 
this winter, the influenza will hit the country very hard and other places too, because we haven't developed immunity to it over the last year or two. So I think, yeah, we need to be particularly resilient, but uh, amazing what you're doing now and just deep respect for all those multiple things, juggling and spinning. I remember those old spinning plate games they used to have. Run, <laughs> and I have this image of you running around the stage, just keeping them all-, all, all oh, running, running, around, running around my house. And yeah, 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 I, I can see that. Um, but take me back to yourself as a young man and your upbringing and uh, parents, grandparents, any teachers. What sort of shaped you to be the man and very successful, modest there you are. You are, to, to all that I've spoken to, hugely successful. Um, what has shaped you into the man you are today? Give me perhaps five minutes on that. I'd be interested in your life. I, I, I think that's always a very hard question, isn't it? Um, because I think introspection, um, introspection, I, I don't always know that it's 360. You know, I think we see the bits that we like to see. Um, and if I were answering that in one sentence, which I, I won't, I'll expand. I would say what made me the man that I am today or the person that I am today was really um, the brilliance of my mother. Her, her foresight, her stoicness, her joy, her love, her generosity, her sense of community. I think all of those things have deeply impacted um, my psyche. And, and I, I think I kind of debunked, I kind of, I kind of defined myself through, through those rather large uh, symbols of humanity that she placed up in front of me as a child. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I'm the eldest child of two economic migrants, um, well, at least the eldest child of my mother's. My father was married before. So in, actually I'm in that weird position of I'm number four, I think of my father's and I'm number one of my mother's. Um, and, but yeah, I was the first one born here in this country. They were from the West Indian island of Grenada. And so that has a different kind of responsibility because even when some family members, my sister joined us when she was older, I still, I still kind of had the kind of head child um, frame because I was born with the luxury of being born here in this country and the responsibilities that came with that. Um, my, my home, my family home was a magnificent home. And, it was very warm and very loving and such fun. I mean, I, I, I keep looking back and going, am I making it up? Am I just remembering only the good times and not the bad? And there were some very, very heavy times. We, you know, we lived during the times when I would describe the streets of Great Britain as being terribly cold in terms of race. Um, but inside my house was, um, I always felt safe. Mm -hmm. um, there was... You know, I, I remember it clearly, and not to even expand on it, but I remember clearly the police you know, kicking down my front door, my parents' front door, running into my father's room and pulling down his wardrobes, and even another time, you know, pushing the door in, and my brother was, um, he was hit with the door, and his lips, his lip was bleeding, and and of course my father was never charged with anything. It was, it was, um, my father was not that kind of citizen, but we grew up during the time of of naked aggression. And I, I, and also as I was growing up, you know, as I've said, the inside of my house was terribly warm, but the outside white use culture at the time defined itself through the lens of the skinheads, which was a racist movement, even though it listened to black music. Um, and, uh, and so it meant that, that, you know, that outside of my immediate circle of Southall, where I grew up, um, we were surrounded by aggressive xenophobia, nay um, racism, that often made itself manifest in terms of me or my cousins or my friends being stabbed or sliced. So it was like, it was, it was a, we, we lived in a war zone, um, like every day. I went to school seven miles away and, and, and I can still remember the fear of leaving Southall and hitting Hanwell and then West Ealing and then Ealing and then hitting Acton. And Acton and the poorer parts of East Acton was just like, I mean, it was a war zone. You expected every day to be jumped or beaten or chased. I mean, so again, when I juxtapose the coldness of the exterior against the warmth and the love and the diversity and the, and the neurodiversity that was in my household, I, I have to say that, that I was defined less by the external hate 
and more by the internal love. Wow. I, I, I just can't imagine that environment. My, my only nearest experience is, you know, being on the streets of Northern Ireland uh, or Bosnia, which were war zones of their own making. And you didn't know where the next attack was coming from. And you were out and you were on patrol. And you were just constantly alert and looking for areas where you might be attacked from. And I suppose it must have been like that in... I, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to be churlish to compare it to a actual war zone with guns no. and, and explosions. But you're absolutely right. One felt mortally threatened yeah. on a daily basis. And you're absolutely right that even to this day, if I hear for like four footsteps in a row, I go, bah, 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 I will naturally spin on my axis. I will look behind me while running backwards. I will naturally, because growing up, if you heard that, that I, you thought that was a skinhead that was about to cut you. And so you'd move and then you'd keep running so as to avoid it and then sight yeah. the enemy as it were, and then keep it moving. So um, again, not to compare it to, to you know, genocides or, or, or you know, sectarian troubles, but for me, it was existential. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm very grateful to you when we chatted uh, a few months ago uh, to, to plan this session. I said, look, I, I am so ignorant about this whole area. I want to learn more. You know, I, I've lucky when I was, went to the military academy at Santos that I made some great friends. Errol Stewart, who was from Jamaica. And when Lee and I got married uh, six and a half years ago, Errol was our best man in Jamaica, in Ocho Rios. Uh, and we've stayed the greatest of friends. And he introduced me to all his Jamaican friends. And we've been over a few times. Um, Jeffrey Bostic uh, from mm. Barbados. And Jeffrey's now, poor guy, is the health minister in charge of Barbados. Well, of course, you can imagine all the COVID problems that they've got at the moment. Uh, then there was Anwar, uh, Mr. Anwar, who was from Jordan. And he's now a major general looking after the king of Jordan. Uh, <laughs> and then there was um, Himalaya Tapper, who ended up as a major general looking after the um, Nepali earthquake and all the dramas that happened. And, and the, the one guy we haven't yet tracked down is um, Mr. Belengi, who came from Zaire. We've, we've never seen him. I'm afraid I think a coup ended up with him disappearing because he was a, a, a member of the rebel forces who became the government and then went out of power again. But the reason I say that is that they taught me aged 18 about what it was like to, to perceive the racism within a, a, a what was apparently a nice environment of a military academy mm. with British uh, officer cadets. But this, this arrogance and, and, uh, and just failure to see what it was like to be living their lives and how they were treated. And, and I was thinking to you that you got me into reading Malcolm X's autobiography. I'm dyslexic, so I listened to it. <laughs> I was reading up about Marcus Garvey, who you taught me about. And also I've been uh, loving listening to Roots, which is a hell of a, a story, but just also gives you perspective. And until you've started to read some of these things, I, I just realized just how little I know. Anything you want to perhaps add to that? that? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, again, I, what's very interesting, uh, and of course, as you said, we spoke a few months ago and I, I, I may have referenced those as foundational texts for me. What's really interesting is, um, and, and relating to your original question about what made me the man that I am, I, I often describe myself as being walked into manhood by Malcolm X on one hand, Muhammad Ali on the other, and then being gently pushed by the playwright August Wilson from behind. But the person that I leave out actually is Alex Haley, and who was the writer of both Roots, and the author rather of both Roots, and the and the writer of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Oh, I didn't realize he did both. Wow. Yeah, he did both. And so actually two seminal um, pieces of literature that yeah. changed my life. The artist, the writer, was right at the heart of it. And I think that also um, has fed into my dedication to want to use art as a catalyst for, for debates on, on issues that I perceive to be important. Yeah, no. I, I... The, the power of the pen or the movie, uh, I mean, as, you, as I said to you, my, my medium of learning is auditory mm. and, and visual. Uh, I'll watch, you know, um, documentaries and movies. 
uh, the reading I do do, it's it's harder, but I'm I'm soaking it up in this way. And and so the power that you have in making uh, a movie or being a singer, an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, all these skills you have, it's a it's a great responsibility and it's a great honor, isn't it? It absolutely really is a great honor. And and I say it's a great honor because, and again, I often reference my parents. My, my mother was a nurse. She was an auxiliary nurse um, working nights on the weekends in Hillingdon Hospital. And my father worked in a factory, Quaker Oats. Um, and, you know, and, and in particular, my mother did three jobs. They were not three jobs that she loved. I get to do, you know, multiple jobs that I absolutely love and the honor of being able to, to not make a living because that always just reduces it to money, but to be able to function within, within the world of art, to be able to, to know that there is another one around the corner, that there's a, another way of articulating this. Sometimes it's in song, other times it's in a podcast, other times it's in a play, another time it might be in a movie. You know, to be able to be, able to, to be part of all of those worlds. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a huge, it's a huge honor. And every time I get a, you know, a bad review or something from a show or, or you know, or, or something at work, you know, takes me down, I, I remember that I'm blessed. Yeah, because it is quite important that we put everything in perspective. And, and one of the old things I remember my old Sergeant Major used to say when I was worrying about something, we were in Bosnia, uh, keeping the date in peace accord, he'd go, boss, has anybody died? And I went, no. He said, then really let's put this in perspective. It's not that serious. And, and, and I think, yeah, putting things in perspective, but I also have great respect that the, the creativity that you have to have and the, the new ideas and the, uh, and the different angles and the twists in stories and messages, the, there must come the days when you go, oh, I'm dried up. God, I've got to come up with something. Uh, the pressure on you to, to keep, producing tell me about that you know there's 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 such joy in idea generation mm. and there's and and when i say joy I, I sometimes mean someone said to me the other day and um, do you speak to yourself sometimes and i went well we all do don't we and i said yes is the answer and then she said um do you ever say anything nice to yourself when you speak to us <laughs> and i realized that i absolutely don't like oh, you idiot you did and you know, I'm always, you know, like if I am, it, it, it's, it's a chastisement, except during idea generation. Like sometimes you might find a turn in a story and smile to yourself and go, oh, I like that. And another time you might find a gag and go, oh, that's quite funny. That's good. I'm going to keep that. Yeah. And there is, the, there, is, there is joy in seeking to find the thing that will communicate your idea in the most efficient fashion. Yeah. And, and sometimes, as I said, and you know, sometimes there are days when I am just typing, not writing. And then there are other days when it's all inspiration. And yeah. I think part of the part of the balance is having the discipline on those typing days to just have faith that some writing will emerge yeah. out of the typing that you're currently doing. Yeah, that's, that's a very good way of putting it. Um... And I think there is this psychological truism that the level of kindness you show to yourself mm. is the limit that you can be kind to other people. We often think I can be hard to myself, but I'll be nice to other people. No, if you're really, if you're really tough on yourself and run yourself down, it'll seep into your relationships with others. So it really is important to, to actually show some kindness to yourself. Because I, I like that, Johnson. I really like that. Cause I, and I don't know that I'm nodding as if, um, as if I'm going, yeah, yeah, I do that. And I don't know that I'm quite hard on myself. But what I am very mindful of is um, sometimes is to look at my own failures and my own failings and insecurities. And when others have transgressed, view their transgressions through the lens of my own failings. You know, there are just some things that I do that people just go, I just don't understand. Why would he do that? But I know I do it because I, 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 it's the way that I've constructed myself to survive. And so I try and do that with others. When I go, what the hell would they think of? Why would they do that? And I try and think about the thing in me that others might not understand. And hopefully that gives me empathy, not always sympathy, but certainly empathy towards why they have done the thing that I haven't quite understood. So 
I have not conquered the not being hard on myself, therefore not being hard on others. And I think others might say that of me. Others, I, I would accept that as a fault, that others might say, I look at others partly through the lens of, well, look, I just ran 10 miles. I mean, I don't run, but I, why, why didn't you? And then I have to check myself and go, well, because people are built differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's very sound. And um, I, I had a great mentor many years ago, a uh, general as he is now, but uh, he was a commanding officer. And he said to me, if something goes wrong, it's a teachable moment. And you ask yourself, what have I learned? What am I going to do differently? And if you treat the people who work for you, that that's a teachable moment and you can teach them something from it and they can recover from it, growing the stronger, yes. that's true leadership. That's true leadership. And I, I found that quite profound. I don't always do it. I, I, I will you know, chastise myself as well rather than going, okay, I, I, it didn't work out. What have I learned? What am I going to do differently? But uh, as you and I were talking before the, the show began, in this period of time in accident and emergency in hospital over the last few weeks, mm. I, I looked back and I thought, what are the lessons I learned from that? Mm. And what will I do differently? And so I think everything and everybody we meet has something to teach you, us if only we'd listen. And I think, you know, that, that horrendous experiences of being sliced at or stabbed by skinheads uh, in an unsafe warlike zone taught you something. The question is what, I don't know, <laughs> but um, every experience has something to teach us. Uh, and maybe it's to be more appreciative of what we do have rather than what we don't, as you said earlier. I think that was profound. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I, I do this a lot now, of course. I, you know, I, you know we, we take the blows that life gives us and then I go, what can I learn from it? And I don't always have that answer. Yeah. And, and I, I have tried to make myself continually ask that of myself and of the world and of those that I trust, while at the same time trying to forgive myself for not yeah. having the answer. Yeah, yeah. So long as I am continually in pursuit of it. Yeah, I, I think it's, 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 a li- it's a lifetime's journey. Yeah. We're always learning. And um, I get very worried if any of the leaders I talk to and I say to them, when was the last time you were dead wrong? And they go, hmm, was it, was it, was it 1982? <laughs> Come on, really? You know, and, and then how quickly did you learn and how quickly did you resolve it? Um, thinking about your fascinating life and career thus far, what would be a proudest moment uh, and what did you learn from it? And what would be a darkest moment? And what did you learn from that imposter and treating, mm. treating them just the same? I, I think my proudest moment, and, I, and they're always very hard, right? Because we all love our babies. But I think the, 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 the proudest moment would be, I was the artistic director of a thing called the World Festival of Black Arts and Culture in Senegal in 2010. And hitherto, the only thing that I directed was six actors on the then tricycle stage. And what they asked of me with this festival was to direct, uh, or to write and direct a, a piece of stadium theater held at the Senghor Stadium with a cast of 500. Wow. An audience of, of 60,000. Oh. And, um, and then curate a three week international festival of the arts that, that asked the central question, where will Africa be in a hundred years time? And, and I kind of just said, when I was asked, I was a bit like, yeah, of course. Had I been asked just as an artist, I would have been over, overjoyed. If I'd been asked to represent Britain as an artist, it was a hysterical, hysterical it was, but a historical festival. I also would have just been over the moon, but to be asked to, to lead it when I'd never, AD'd anything before, um, was, was almost a miracle. And my proudest moment was the opening, the night of the opening ceremony. And I won't bore you with many of those who did not believe in the vision that I'd put out, uh, or the vision that I was trying to walk towards, and all of the issues that we had around it. But the night when we got to the end, and I heard 60,000 people roar, 
and about eight or 10 presidents stand to their feet as we captured the history of Africa in a piece of theater for, I, I, I remember walking, you know, the circumference of the, of the stadium and just saying, thank you. And when I say thank you, I mean, thank you to, we don't do these things by ourselves in my fundamental belief. I said, thank you to whatever it is that anyone believes in or does not is fine. But for me, I said, thank you to, to the energy that allowed that, um, that manifestation. So wow. I, I, I would describe that as my proudest moment. And there are others that I'm really, really proud about, but I would describe that as, as that. Yeah, yeah. And equally, and again, I'm speaking professionally because I think that um, the, the worst moment I had, I think, was a couple of years back when I was accused of, um, of, of stealing someone's work, which I had not done. And, and they had deliberately thrown me under the bus because the person um, who they may have been pointing their fingers at um, was too big, too, too strong, too famous. And so they kind of threw me under the bus and I went, I and the young Vic and the staff were just um, abused by social media in the most racist and the most demoralizing and violent of fashions. And it was organized and coordinated and they, they came for me. And, um, and it, it was, it, it was, it was really, it was really hard. I, and I remember, um, I mean, there was one day when, uh, uh, you know, a, a, an arts program on the radio had asked me to come on and, 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 and defend myself, quote unquote. And, and everybody around me was advising me, don't, 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 don't do it, don't do it. And, and, I, and I wanted to, because I was a bit like, I do not have anything to hide. I, 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 I don't, and, and, and I took the advice. And then they asked the people who were accusing me of this thing to come on and attack me. And I was like, I don't know what to do. The only equipment I have is honesty. The only equipment I have is truth. And, and I can't, and I, and I can't, I can't get through the noise with this truth. And I was really demoralized. And I got a phone call from someone who said, I um, I'm reading about what's happening to you and the people who are accusing you of this did this to me. Oh, wow. I just need to let you know. And they went on to explain part of the motivation. I remember Jonathan, I remember I was with two staff members, uh, three staff members at the time who will be friends for life. And um, because it was being under fire. And I remember crying. And I just cried. I'm not trying to do match of thing like a man don't cry. I cry all the time, but I, I seldom cry in front of in front of colleagues. And I remember just bursting in, in bursting into tears. Just that sense of relief that someone, at least one person, can hear my truth. Mm. And uh, I, I would describe that as as the coldest, whitest day that I have. That, that I have lived through professionally. Yeah, yeah, I'm really sorry for what you had to go through. And uh, it, I, I just, I can't imagine how tough, how tough that is. And, and um, one of the tech companies that I work with that called Digital Identity Net, they're trying to find a way of um, having two parts to your digital identity so that on social media, only the people whose identity you can confirm can communicate with you uh, and I think it's a really important step to, to stop this trolling and people attacking you without actually having the courage to put their names to it yes. and doing what they're doing because you know whether it be abuse of uh, footballers yeah. uh, over, over racism or whatever it might be or anything like that I think there's an awful lot of cowards who hide behind social media to try and destroy people but if, if their names were out there and they could be found for what they do and indeed uh, found guilty of doing uh, defamatory things or whatever they might be, I think the world would be a lot safer. You know, I think you're absolutely right to be entering into discussions about how do we, how do we, how do we monitor and how do we 
look after our mental health and our morality mm. in this world of instant uh, gratification via our thumbs. Um, you know, because in truth, let's look, you know, I also try to often take myself out of this time and I go back to the fear that every and any celebrity had of the Sunday newspapers, not but a decade ago. The Sunday expose, where you had the fake person come and entrap you or the honey trap or the blah, blah, and everyone lived in fear of of some exposure or not. So it's not unique to our times. It's just louder, more amplified, and easier to access. Mm. Um, and and I think I, I think it's all, it's incumbent upon a, a upon a society to look at itself and says, at your worst, who are you? Yeah, yeah. That's a it's it's a really good one. And also, you would hope that just by being honest and true and doing the right things, you'd be okay. But that isn't the case uh, when you come across some some white collar psychopaths. It's it's it, it, it's not it's not it's not. But also, and again, I think it's about it's about the world, right? That we find ourselves living in, and and we in the global north, we we, you know, we have so much, and 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 we are trained to look for the things that we do not have, so we can acquire them to feel better about ourselves. And, and that, in terms of our mental well-being, is a, is a real challenge. Yeah. So when, the, so when we are made to feel ugly, when we are made to feel less than the world has told us we should be, reaching and taking others down seems to be a natural um, or an instantaneous response. And I think we have to train the next generations to, uh, to know that when we that when we don't feel at our best, that, um, that making others feel worse may not be the answer. Yeah, you, you've hit on two uh, truisms psychologically. One is the sort of seesaw effect, that uh, people believe that they can tip the seesaw down in their favor, uh, and that um, perhaps by pulling others down, they'll feel better, but they don't. Um, that's the first thing that people think that in order to feel better, they'll do that. The other one is the the, the paradox of a success versus happiness. Mm. The, de the definition of success is getting what you want, but happiness is wanting what you already have. Mm. And, 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 and I think there's, there's a reckoning to be had, particularly around the environment and all that goes on, where we're going, I, I, I've got an Apple Watch. Wow, well done, I've got an Apple Watch. Oh, perhaps I need another watch. No, I don't need another watch. I've got one watch and that's all I need. Yeah. Oh, but I'm in marketing. And I want you to have a different color strap and another watch and, yep. and sell you more shite. Well, I don't want any more shite. I've got lots of stuff. Yep. And, and if we stop being sold to that, we need that happiness is getting more stuff, which it definitely isn't. And happiness is about appreciating what you already have and how lucky you are. It's hard, though, isn't it, Jonathan, when you haven't got the stuff to hear that. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. It's really hard to go. You know, and, and, and particularly I think about women, there were like, I'm told there were like 60,000 adverts a day targeted at us, right? So we take in 60,000 new impulses. And if, it's, and if they're all coming at you, when we were growing up, there were three channels and then it went to four. And now there is 15 million channels and a trillion different ways of hitting you via the internet. And if I am being told over and over again, I'm not good enough. To have this means you are good enough. I must have low self-esteem. And I must have a way of making myself instantaneously feel better. And so actually what we, in my humble opinion, you know, our entire system is built on the targeting of the human psyche. Yeah. To want more. Yeah, and the fear of missing out, FOMO. Yeah, the fear of the fear of, of not getting some. Yeah. So you know, I, I think I, I think it's hard. Uh, it's certainly beyond me, but uh, in terms of the art, finding the answer. But I do profoundly believe that the next generation coming in will see the excesses of this. Never before in human history have um, people had so loud a, a microphone so quickly at hand. Never has that happened. And so you know we kind of have to get used to these immediate excesses. And then I think, 
hopefully the next gen will come through and, uh, and they will curtail some of those excesses. A very, very good point you make. And thinking about the next generation, yeah. let's take you back to when you were that next generation as a young 16-year-old lad, mm. knowing what you know now and all the experiences you've had and mistakes you've made and successes you've had, what if you go back and meet your 16-year-old self in, a, in your DeLorean back to the future child, <laughs> um, what bit of advice would you say, hey, this matters, but this doesn't. What, what would your bit of wisdom be to a young 16-year-old back then? It's really hard, isn't it, not, not to fall on, you know, trite cliches. But I think what I would say, and this just slightly doesn't answer the question a little bit, but I, I think what I would say to my 16-year-old self is, you know, keep believing. In the face of much, Keep believing, have faith. Mm. Um, and I remember, I say that because I remember my mother would, would often say a version of that to me. That when I was in my late teens and my early twenties and probably right up to my thirties before I got the first kind of taste of quote unquote, what we would call success. I remember my mother, I'd, you know, I'd be, I'd be poor and, in need of cash and, 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 and in need of favor from the world, recognition. And my mother would often say, no, don't worry, you're gonna make it, you're gonna make it. And though at the time that didn't really matter, and it, it mattered little because I didn't need affirmation from my mother, I needed affirmation from the world, you know, financially, um, you know, career-wise. Um, later, I know that they were, they were real footsteps. They were real things that I could cling on to. So I mm. someone mm. believes in me. Yeah, and it's certainly that story of your mother. And, and while our experience is so different, I had a mother who brought the three of us up on her own. And my, mm -hmm. father, my father was killed when I was uh, two and a half. Uh, and, that, and that really turned our lives around. Um, he was a fast jet pilot in the fleet air arm. And suddenly we weren't guests of the Navy anymore. We weren't welcome and we had to leave um, on a, a pittance of a pension, which wasn't enough to get by on. But I remember being told that I was thick and I was gonna be a dustman at school at age about seven mm. because I couldn't spell, I couldn't do my maths. Well, it turned out I was dyslexic, but they didn't know in those years, it's, it was many years later, yes. probably only about five years ago that I really had a test and found out I was severely dyslexic and uh, dyscalculia, which is numbers as well. That's but, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, but look, look how we've both found a way. But the point was, my mother said to me, No, you're not going to be a dustman. I, I believe in you, and you'll have different intelligences, and you will find a way. Amen. Uh, and you'll be, perhaps you'll be good with people. Mm. So, so mothers and fathers do have a massive impact on children. Sometimes that can be negative, that the unmet needs of parents living through their children. You're going to go to Cambridge. I never yeah. went to Cambridge, but you're going to go to Cambridge. I don't yeah. want to go to Cambridge. Shut up. You're going to go to Cambridge. Um, it is, it's sometimes it can go badly wrong, but many times it's, it's hugely inspirational. And, and my late mother, I, I'm forever grateful for her belief in me when I just thought I was thick and would describe to people I'm thick because, mm. because the teacher had told me I was thick. And I can't believe the labeling they do. Let's go around the inspiring leadership compass in a sort of quick far way right. from um, moral question. If, if you had a favorite value that you like to live by, what, what particular foundational value have you always stuck to? Kingdom heart. Oh, say about that one. That's lovely. It, it means, you know, give people the benefits of the doubt. Give the most generous reading that you can of, of a situation and, and, and try to and try to access everyone through the largest possible hearts that you can. I love that. I have not heard that before. That's very special. Thank you. Kingdom heart. I will, I will hang on to that. PQ, which is meaning and purpose. What, why do you do what you do, Roy? Um, because I believe we're here to serve and I've been given the skills that I've been given um, in order to, to serve some greater good. And that is, in my humble opinion, to incrementally, um, to incrementally contribute 
to us being better than we were the day before. No, mm. oh, love it. Absolutely love it. Health question is the next one. Um, what do you do? Uh, we talked about mental health being really severely hit mm. during those tough times. I said the 18 months when those theatres were closed and mm. uh, films were not being done and people couldn't meet. But um, what tip would you give on physical health? What tip would you give on mental health that served you well? And as Colin Powell, who I had a lot of respect for in his book, uh, he wrote his book and he called it, It Worked For Me. <laughs> uh, and I thought that's a really good one because often people have this silver bullet do do this and you'll be a great leader or do this and you'll you know but it, it, it doesn't work for everybody but it, what works for you mentally and physically in the health area I, I should say that um, I, I'm in no position to speak or give advice or even comment on in the health area because um, I, I just do not have a health regime I have only just in the last two months begun to, uh, to, to do any physical exercise. It's the first time in like 10 years. Um, and, and I have to say it, it, it wasn't working for me, hence the extra 10 COVID pounds above my heaviest weight. But actually in the last two months, as I've said, I've, begin, I've begun to think, all right, come on now. You're not getting any younger. What hits you now is gonna stay there for a while. So um, I've started to do that. Mentally though, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And I, and I think what works for me is, um, is, is I, I, I tend to not, um, I, I tend to not inhale. And what I mean by that is, so if something is really brilliant or really successful, I kind of enjoy that for the moment and then I press on and I put it back in its box. And if something is really bad or, or bad, then, I, I, I'm, I'm in it because I can't help it emotionally for a moment, but then my attempt is to put it back in its box as soon as humanly possible. Um, and, and I literally have a timetable in my brain. Like a show gets hit, it's bad reviews. I know that for about three days, I'm gonna go, okay, I'm gonna feel low. And it's going to almost get in the way of the next thing that I'm going to write. And then I'm gonna go, no, you cannot allow it to get in the way of the next thing you're gonna write. So you know what? Um, Walla in it for two days and then pick yourself up brush yourself off and start all over again. And I think that that kind of attitude is mentally, um, I, I think has, has, has helped me as I, yeah. you know, kind of, I kind of in, in essence, I kind of go, okay, it's happened. And now what, um, what can you do to either make it better or yeah. to move forward? Yeah, that's a, that's a really healthy attitude. Uh, mentally, it's a very healthy attitude. And, and then from there on to um, what I call cultural intelligence, mm. uh, diversity, equality, inclusion. Um, what would be your bit of wisdom about understanding difference and people who are different and uh, particularly around the topics we've talked about on racism, really? Yeah, I, I was really fortunate as a child. I grew up in a, in a very diverse part of London, Southall, as I've said before. And I remember really clearly um, uh, you know, remembering white flight. And about when Idi Amin expelled the Asian community from Uganda, they came into Southall in, in, in quite large numbers. And I remember really clearly hearing people go, oh my God, it was only 50% Asian before, now it's 78%. By the time I left home, you know, Southall was being called Little India. But what was brilliant about that is you could look at it as one mass, or you could go, there were Punjabis and Gujaratis, and then there were West Indians and there were Sikhs and there were Hindus. And all of a sudden, this amorphous mass became groupings of diverse people with different cultural um, habits and, and, and inclinations. And then, and then I began to understand that actually I was part of the global majority, not an ethnic minority. And once I landed that, I began to see that, um, that diversity is a plus and monoculturism is a, mi is a minus. Mm, that's very, very profound. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to think about that for quite a while. From cultural intelligence question, CQ, to EQ. You, you have a lovely way with people. I, I've, from the very moment that we met, I feel very psychologically safe with you. We can chat about almost any topic. You're very interesting, very stimulating. But What's a tip you've learned about connecting with people on an emotional and social level 
Um, that's really hard to answer because quintessentially I love people. Mm. I just, I just, I find this fascinating and, uh, and, and I find interactions rewarding and I find, you know, it's partly why I'm a writer, observing people, how we negotiate our highs and our lows to be, to be, to be, I don't know, I, you know, I just think, again, whatever one believes in or not, um, whether one believes in a creator God or not, and, and I, I don't care whatever anyone else thinks. Um, I don't mean I don't care whatever they say, like I have no prejudice on whether people believe it, I don't. Um, that if we were created, my God, what a brilliant creation. That, that we have such a myriad of personalities and processes and, and, and expressions. I, 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 find, I find the human species to be fascinating. And, uh, and, and so I, I tend to want to engage. Yeah, no, you, you clearly love what you do. It, it shines through. Um, from those early days of um, hearing the four steps and then having to spin and dance backwards at the same time as moving very quickly, you've had to learn about resilience against adversity even though there was that warmth and that love in the home. Um, what would be your top tip on resilience against adversity, and particularly when you get some real hammering from vindictive and unpleasant people who want to have a go at you or criticise you or whatever? What's, what's your, your big learning about resilience? I, I think it's having faith that life is long, that truth rises to the top sometimes, and it may take an... It may take a lifetime for it to do that, but when it does, oh my God, it's satisfying. I think it is, it is having faith that that which is right will, will happen. It doesn't always, mm. but that would be my, that, that's my tip for resilience. Yeah, hold on. yeah, hold on, yeah. Life is long. Yeah, and, and it is so interesting that, that many people, if you look through their biographies and things like that, and, the impact as we shared of, of Malcolm X or something like that, 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 that at the time they weren't you know, recognized in their own country as being a, a philosopher or a profound figure. It's often after their death that that happens. And, and I, I suppose that would take me on to the next one, which is what would you like your legacy to be when you die? Because you will die. Yes. But that's the only certainty. That's the only certainty I can guarantee. That, that I will. Yes, I will. Yes, what would you like your legacy to be from your work and your personal work? I mean, again, I think it's really hard, isn't it? What is legacy? What does it mean? Uh, I, I think what I would like people to say of me is that I tried. Mm. No, I tried. I, you know, I, I, I'm human and I failed at many things, but I tried. Mm. I, I think. And I think if I'm in, as a, in terms of career, there is one thing that I'm very, 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 very proud of. And it's called the Black Cultural um, Play Archives. Sorry, the Black Play Archives at the National Theatre. And when I was breaking into the business as a playwright, Black plays were just not published. And so we always felt that we were somehow creating something new, that we were, you know, we were, we were building the wheel all over again. And I got to a point where I went, that cannot be so. And so we started an initiative where we, when we went and we found over 300 plays that were professionally produced in the last century in Britain, and then we put it up on the website, which means that never again can a generation say, um, you know, that we don't know the shoulders that we stand on. And I think that probably is one of the things I'm most proudest of. Mm. I love that. But this, this whole concept of the shoulders we stand on of those who've gone before and what they've done for us and you know never underestimate the impact that a small group of determined men and women can achieve because all the big changes in the world have been achieved by small groups of determined men and women brand the road the road to freedom is seldom walked by the multitude yes yes that's so true the other aspect of the Inspiring Leadership Compass is brand, reputation, BQ, brand, reputation, image, and impact. What, what have you found you've learned about, about brand that you'd pass on as a tip to others? 
you know, brand can be a dirty word. It's not to me. We, we live in a world where people need to quantify things very, very quickly. Who you are, what you are, what you stand for, and what, when under fire, do you retreat to? What position do you retreat to? Is magnificently important. An example for me very quickly is that I remember when I was much younger, if I went out on a date with a woman, I'm heterosexual, so that would be my, my gender of choice, that I, um, I would judge them harshly if they were really bad to the waiting staff in a restaurant or rude to the waiting staff. And so, and, and so I, I put that in, oh, I say that, so as to say that, that who you are when under fire is your brand. Yes, I, I love that one. And in fact, it, it re recalled a time when I was a, a managing director and I had a couple of coaches who were associates and one of them was always sucking up to the CEO of the business but he was horrible to the receptionists. <laughs> and I said, who you are shouts out so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. Yeah. And, and, and for me, the people who can't influence your career, the way you treat them, tells me so much about you compared to how you are with others. And one of my great, very moving moments when I was in hospital, being treated by the man who saved my brother's life, mm. the, the surgeon, was everybody in this hospital knew my brother Graham. He'd worked there 25 years as a surgeon. The, the cleaning staff, the people who worked in the kitchens and brought the food, the porters, nurses, mm. and so on, all different levels. And he had not distinguished between any of them. And one cleaner had once said to him, 20 years ago, she still remembers this, she told me the story, your brother Graham, when, I, when he asked me who I was and what I did, and, and, and I did, met him in the corridor and I explained who I was, and I said, I'm just a cleaner. And he said, no, Mary, you're not just a cleaner. You stop patients and staff getting MRSA because you keep this clean. You're a key member of the staff. Never underestimate the impact you make. And, and she said, I've never forgotten that. Mm. I, and I just found that deeply moving that my brother Graham cares about everybody, whatever they are, walking with kings or with a common man, and he treats them all the same. And that's very rare. Amen. And it's, it's a real inspiration to me. Amen. Very special. Sorry, it uh, got me a bit. Um, no, please don't apologize. Uh, last two or three questions. Um, teams, you've, you've pulled teams together. Mm. Um, uh, and you've uh, inherited teams. Yep. And I just wonder when you've, when you've had a team or an, an, a group that is quite toxic and it's yep. not gelling, it's not working, yep. what, what tip would you give to get it to becoming a high-performing team? What, what have you done? I think a couple of things. I think number one is not getting in the way of those who wish to leave it, uh, even possibly encouraging the exit of those who wish to lead that team. And number two is to lead with kingdom heart, is to say, here's what I believe in, who's up for this? Who wants to stay for this ride? Now, that's very easy to say that these things take years sometimes, but I do believe that the, the people in the room are ultimately the people who are supposed to be in the room. We say that as sometimes you're, as a director, you're auditioning and you're offering roles out. And, and the person you really wrote that for or wanted in this thing says no. And at, right up to the last minute, someone jumps in and you think, mm. and then actually you, you get to opening night and you say, this role was always yours. Yeah. Those who were in this room were meant to be in this room. Mm. Create the room that people want to be in. Oh, God, that's, that's wow. Create the room that people want to be in. That, that's profound. That's the name of your next book. <laughs> yeah. And again, I don't know if I do it successfully all the time, but when I have, when it has worked, those people, no matter whether you move jobs or continents, they stay in your life. Yeah. No, I, I, I loved the, create the room you want to be in, but also I'm reminded of that comment that you meet people for a season, a reason, or a lifetime. Amen. And sometimes all three. Yeah. And, and so 
Why have I met this person? What is it I'm going to learn from them? It might be how not to lead. Um, if I met Donald Trump, I'd know how not to lead. <laughs> Amen. But if I met, if I met, you know, Desmond Tutu, it, yeah. it might be, you know, how how do you show up and how are you present with people? Um, uh, in all the reading that you've done, uh, when you've given me some great books to read, um, what would be your favourite book on autobiography, leadership, anything that that really is quite inspirational to? to others who might be listening, go, that's a really great book to have a read. It's, it's I, I, Again, you know, it's interesting. I, I seldom read, um, well, I, that's not true. I, I have to go back to the two foundational texts for me, the autobiography of Malcolm X and, uh, and the letters of Marcus Garvey. And the reason why they're really important to me in terms of leadership, because they're outside of my, um, my realm of expertise. These are men with, who are magnificent organic intellectuals who built movements where millions of people during their lifetime and outside of their lifetime have signed up to what they believe in. And I often, I look at someone like Marcus Garvey and I went, oh my God, he bought a ship <laughs> in, 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 at a moment when, when, when African-Americans were not buying cars. He bought a shipping line in order to create trade across the diasporic world. Outside of Twitter, he had 10 million followers. And I kind of, and I go, how did someone do that in 1919 to 1930X? How, how, how was that done? And I think an analysis of, of not just the cult of personality, but how service becomes a magnet. I find to be the most inspiring um, autobiographies or, or leadership books that I could ever find. Yeah. What is their truth? Yeah. Well, I'm pleased you told me it was the letters of Marcus Garvey because I, I found various different things on Marcus Garvey and I, and I read I read on you know Wikipedia and things like that, but I couldn't. I, I was trying to find the one. Yeah. The, the one for me is the letters and opinions of Marcus Garvey, edited by his wife Amy Garvey, and. Okay. Um, that, that again, um, just for my money, he was like the Elon Musk of, <laughs> of, of you know of, of that time, where he, literally it was the equivalent of him saying, "Yeah, no, let's put a spacecraft on the moon." Yeah, fantastic. So we're now down to the last two-minute top tip. So if you'd be good enough to um, introduce yourself again and what you do, and then give us your two-minute top tip on leadership, that would be a nice way to bring it to a close. I'm Kwame Kramer. I'm the artistic director of the Young Vic Theatre, amongst other things. And my two-minute top tip about leadership. Um, people don't have to love you. Don't do what you do for anyone else other than you. Make sure that you lead your team and everyone with the most generous of hearts. Focus on how you can be most effective how you can reach the largest audience. And that doesn't just mean numbers. It might mean large in terms of depth, how, you, how deep the thing you do goes into the individuals that you are in contact with. But ultimately, leadership is about service. How are you serving? That is brilliant. Thank you very much indeed, Kwame. I've really been honored to have you on the inspiring and um i do hope that we'll we'll stay in touch I, uh, I, I, I found that really good so thank you for sharing your wisdom experience with people and we'll chat again soon so now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that i've interviewed what are you going to do next if you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. 
And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.